kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 13 verses 14 through 15 says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. In Acts 13, Luke, for the first time in the book of Acts, recounts a sermon delivered by the Apostle Paul. Although it's popular in modern scholarship to view the speeches in Acts as the literary inventions of Luke, Luke himself claims that he is presenting material which he collected either from witnesses to the speeches or from the speakers themselves. Even if we conclude that Luke has abbreviated or in some respect summarized the speech, if we believe in Luke's self-claim about his writing style, and if we believe that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, then we must conclude that we are reading a real and accurate representation of what Paul and others said. That's how I'm going to be approaching and handling these scriptures today. This is by no means the first time the Old Testament is mentioned in Acts, or quoted, or echoed, but it is a profound example of how the Old Testament played a central role in the work of the apostles— both in their evangelism and in their teaching of Christians, and in the life of the church at that time. As we have deduced patterns for church practice and theology from several other presentations in Acts up to this point, I believe it is appropriate for us to do the same here. The apostolic attitude toward and use of the Old Testament as presented in Acts sets the standard for how Christians throughout time and across the world should view and use the Old Testament. In his excellent survey of the Old Testament in the New, Gleason Archer gives 35 examples of the Old Testament being cited in the book of Acts. Scholars will speak of direct citations, adaptations of Old Testament sayings, and allusions to the Old Testament. A direct citation will be a replication of the words of some part of the Old Testament usually preceded by a formula announcing that this is taking place. An adaptation may not have the formula, and consequently it may be unclear whether the writer is actually referring to a specific Old Testament text, and if so, which one? Allusions or echoes are the most subjective of the three. Although some scholars have proposed standards for identifying an echo— at the end of the day, this is more of an interpretive inference on the part of the reader, assuming that a thought was in the mind of the writer, though it is not clearly stated. While we admit the possibility of this, and perhaps even the possibility of identifying examples in the Bible with more or less certainty, I suggest that it is a mistake, and a pretty serious one, to make any major interpretive suggestions about a passage based on a possible echo— especially if those suggestions cannot be clearly established elsewhere. In this study, we will only consider explicit citations. The 35 given by Gleason Archer all fall into this category. But to consider intelligently 
how these scriptures are used in Acts and by the apostles, there are a couple of questions we need to answer first. The first question, which might seem unusual to many listeners, is, did the Old Testament exist in the apostolic age? Many modern scholars would say no. The Old Testament, as contemporary Protestant Christians think of it, or even as it might be packaged in a Jewish publication of the scriptures today, what they would call the Tanakh, did not exist, we're told by many, until about the year A.D. 90, when the so-called Council of Jamnia settled lingering debates about the canonicity of various books among the remaining population of the Jews after the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. Generally, these same scholars will say that the apostles used a version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was created by the Greek-speaking or Hellenist Jews who lived in the Diaspora, and which included several books that were not regarded as canonical by the Jews in Jerusalem. But of course, the same will deny that even the Jews in Jerusalem had a consensus on what the scripture really was, and that such matters were not settled by anyone until long after the end of uh, the Jewish state. It is outside of the scope of this study to deal with the mass of material involved in these discussions, and I'm going to make some study assertions that I do not have the occasion to prove or argue for in detail here, but I'm going to give you some resources later that will be able to accomplish that if you're interested in them. First, the Old Testament canon was very much established and settled by the time of the apostles. The work of settling the canon and the standardized content of the Hebrew scriptures began with Moses himself when the earliest writings of the covenant were stored alongside the ark in the sanctuary, according to Deuteronomy 31.9 and also verse 26. From that time, the preservation of what we call the Old Testament scripture in form and substance was the responsibility of the ministers of the sanctuary, which we call the Levitical priesthood. After the construction of Solomon's temple, Jerusalem became the authoritative center where this sacred trust was safeguarded and maintained. When Jesus was born, the Jews of his time regarded the books which we number as 39 and which they generally numbered as 22 or 24 or 27, because of consolidation of some volumes, as the authoritative written word of God. Jesus spoke often of this collection as the law, or the law and the prophets, or the law of Moses and the Psalms, and the prophets, or the scripture. Uh, Matthew 5.17, John 10.34-35, and Luke 24.44. Second, to say that the apostles used the Septuagint, and then to assert that the Septuagint included books that were not regarded as canonical by the Hebrew Jews, the so-called Apocrypha or Deuterocanon, as if to assume that the apostles maybe had a high view of these books, even regarding them as scripture, uh, this argument, though quite common today, is either to speak from ignorance or from intellectual dishonesty. Until very recently, as has been well established by Cambridge's Peter Williams, no collection of writings was called the Septuagint, and what we call the Septuagint today did not exist until at the earliest, the 5th century AD. That's 400 years after the apostolic era. What the apostles did have access to was a large number of Greek translations, most likely of every 
book of the Old Testament. Certainly other literature existed in that time that was popular and even influential in the culture from which the apostles and other New Testament personalities and authors came, but there is no evidence that they regarded that literature the same way they did the scriptures, as we're going to see in just a moment. In fact, while some scholars claim to find echoes or perhaps even adaptations from these non-canonical books in the New Testament, and we remind you that so-called echoes or adaptations are extremely vague and subjective and can easily be invented by a clever interpreter. There is not one occasion when these books are directly cited like the Old Testament books are. That, I think, is an important point, very important, and worth remembering. It is possible that at times some Bible writers or speakers made their own translation of the Old Testament into Greek and that they used a variety of existing translations, even as most English-speaking Bible students do today, based on what they considered the most accurate representation of a given text with which they were interacting. And sometimes people speak of these various ancient Greek translations of the Hebrew Scripture with the umbrella term, the Septuagint, but probably that's not helpful. Probably it causes more confusion than any assistance that it might give to the discussion, and it might be better to simply describe the Old Greek or the Early Greek translations. The second question we need to ask is, how did the apostles and early Christians view the Old Testament Scripture? Well, if we allow the book of Acts to answer that question, then we would say, in a word, very highly. Many modern Christians have an antipathy against the Old Testament and seem to think it would be better if Christians unhitched their faith or utterly detached themselves from it. This is a profoundly unapostolic attitude. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, when Luke records the conversation the apostles were having with Jesus about his kingdom, we find that they spoke in the language of the Old Testament prophets describing the establishment of his reign as the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Although some Bible students consider this an ill-informed statement, I think it reflects a grasp that Jesus was coming to do what the Old Testament anticipated, even if the apostles at that moment, when they asked the question, didn't really understand what that was. Later, Peter, Stephen, and Paul identified that the God of the patriarchs was the one who was responsible for the Christian movement and expressed that Jesus, especially in his death, resurrection, and exaltation in heaven, was the yes and amen of everything that the ancient prophets had looked for and foretold. In both Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 and Paul's sermon at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, the Old Testament is used as the historical and theological foundation of the Christian faith. The Old Testament records are treated as historically factual, and they're used to draw conclusions about the nature and work of God. The writings of the prophets are often used to interpret historical events, such as when Stephen quotes Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 to interpret the meaning of of the construction of Solomon's temple as something that could not have a conclusive or lasting role in the work of God because God is too great to dwell in an earthly temple. 
While Stephen and Paul feel free to draw historical information supplemental to the Bible from other sources, which actually shows that they considered the Bible text to be one of many real historical witnesses to the ancient experience of their people, they did not draw theological points from other sources, nor did they accept any information that would contradict the testimony of the original Old Testament records. And not only did they see the Old Testament as the historical and theological foundation of the Christian faith, but they saw that it was something inspired by God, and therefore authoritative and inerrant. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter expresses the early disciples' conviction about the divine inspiration of the Old Testament when he calls it that which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of the human author. And he said, what the scripture said had to be fulfilled. How then did the apostles and early Christians use the Old Testament? This, like the subject of whether the Old Testament existed, and if so, what it consisted of, is a very controversial subject. But I want to share my understanding as based on the studies and acts we've done up to this point. In his fourfold gospel, J.W. McGarvey gave three basic ways that explicit Old Testament quotations are used by New Testament writers, particularly when they claim that an Old Testament passage has been fulfilled in the New. We're not discussing here the issue of Old Testament laws or commandments and how Christians should treat them. That's another topic for another time. The first basic apostolic use of the Old Testament was to consider some passages as direct, personal, predictive prophecies of Christ or of the Church or of an event in the New Testament era. McGarvey's example from the Gospel of Matthew is when the scribes in Jerusalem state that it was foretold by the prophet Micah, in Micah 5 and verse 2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew presents that exactly what the prophet predicted took place in the life of Jesus. The second use of the Old Testament was to regard an act or event in the past as symbolic of an act or event that transpired later, specifically in the life of Jesus or in the experience of the church. In this vein, McGarvey suggests we should read Matthew 2.15, in which Matthew says that the removal to and from Egypt of Jesus fulfilled Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I have called my son. McGarvey suggests that while the original passage related to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, that event was a type or a symbol pointing forward to this experience of the Christ. The third use was to appropriate the words of a text that originally applied to a very different situation because it suited another situation very well, and thus to treat the words proverbially. McGarvey suggests this was Matthew's meaning when he said that the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem fulfilled the words of Jeremiah 31.15, a voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they're no more. That passage referred to another event in history, but it was very similar to what happened there in the days of Jesus' infancy, and it fitly described the tragedy. Now, whether or not McGarvey was correct in identifying each of those uses in Matthew, 
I think that the three suggested uses of the Old Testament can certainly be identified in the preaching and teaching of the apostles in Acts. In the very first sermon, in Acts 2 and verse 16, Peter quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32, and he says, This is that. This, what you now see and hear, is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, it's interesting that the passage from Joel is couched in apocalyptic language, and it's quite difficult to point to anything in those verses other than the phrase, I will pour out of my spirit, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and connect it clearly with the events taking place on the day of Pentecost. But Peter does what can be done. He makes those connections, and he invites his hearers and us as Luke's readers to discover the meaning of the other expressions in relation to them. Similarly, in verses 25 through 33, he quotes Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and he says, David says concerning him, that is, Jesus. Now, this is extremely significant because several modern scholars, even many who claim to be Christians, deny that there are any predictive personal prophecies in the book of Psalms. Yet that's clearly what Peter's claiming here. David spoke concerning Jesus. And Jesus was not merely a secondary application of the psalm. According to Peter, he was the only sensible interpretation. Listen to what Peter says. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad, Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, Peter's comments. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Do you see how Peter's reasoning here? He concludes that this psalm could not refer to David because David did not experience what the psalm describes. But then he continues, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Jesus, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So while David could not have been the subject of the prophecy, because he did not experience what the prophecy described, Jesus must have been the subject of the prophecy, because he was the only man in history who did experience it. Paul made the very same arguments about Psalm 16 in Acts 13, verses 36 to 37. And Peter continues in Acts 2, 34, with the same reasoning in applying Psalm 110, verse 1 to Jesus, as a direct prophecy of his enthronement at the right hand of God, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but Jesus did. In Acts 4, 25-28, the whole body of apostles treats Psalm 2 the same way that Peter and Paul treated Psalm 16. They acknowledge that David was the human author. But they claimed that God was in his mouth when he spoke or when he wrote these words. And then they interpret them as having a direct one-for-one -one correspondence to events and personalities 
in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It is remarkable how out of fashion this kind of treatment of biblical prophecy, especially messianic prophecy, is, but if we accept the apostles, we must agree that at least sometimes it is right and good to treat and handle the Old Testament this way. In Acts chapter 14, verse 30, at the conclusion of his sermon in Pisidian Antioch, Paul used the second of McGarvey's three suggested uses of the Old Testament when he said, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. In its original context, this was a word from the prophet Habakkuk for his own people about a coming judgment against them by the Chaldeans. But Paul regards that judgment as a foreshadowing of the judgment God would visit against the Jews of his own day by the Romans if they persisted in rejecting the Christ. Finally, we can see the third of McGarvey's three ways in Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, where Peter called for a selection of a replacement for Judas on this basis. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. In this case, it does not seem that Peter is saying these passages are direct prophecies of the work of Judas but rather that they speak proverbially to his situation. He was an evil and treacherous man, like the psalm describes, who set himself against the Lord and against his anointed. Therefore, it was essential that he be stripped of his office and that it be given to another. And that was exactly what God had and was bringing to pass. Having examined these passages, our next question is, can or should we replicate this kind of Old Testament exegesis in our own preaching? And I suggest the answer must be yes on both accounts. While there may be many difficult questions about John's use of the Old Testament in the Apocalypse, or the evangelist's use of the Old Testament in the Gospels, or Paul's use of the Old Testament in his epistles— and it may be that sometimes the simple framework suggested by McGarvey and seen in these examples doesn't seem to work in some of those other cases. It does not change the fact that this framework has been established as at least generally applicable here, and perhaps even consistent in Acts. There's no indication that the conclusions reached and the arguments made by the apostles required some special revelation of the Spirit. In fact, they were quite logical. They found prophetic statements in the Old Testament, and they examined them carefully to determine whether, as the Ethiopian eunuch asked, the prophet spoke of himself or of some other man. And if the circumstances of the prophet's life did not match the words of the prophecy, the apostles concluded that it must have been some other man, and they set out to establish that the only other man it could have been was Jesus. This is a good and appropriate way for Christians to handle and interpret the Old Testament today. The other two uses are equally valid, but they need their own careful analysis. 
There must be some revealed basis for seeing a later event as antitypical of an earlier one. But if the apostles give us that basis, then the observation would be legitimate. Furthermore, to appropriate an Old Testament passage and treat it proverbially is also acceptable, so long as we're treating it appropriately, according to what it originally and actually meant. The church of today desperately needs to reclaim the apostolic reverence for and handling of the Old Testament, so that our faith will be as strong, as rich, and as complete as the faith of the first disciples. Now, before we conclude, I want to make a special note about some of the things I mentioned earlier in the episode. There is all kinds of misinformation and poor scholarship that circulates on the subject of the canon of Scripture, whether we're talking about the Old or the New Testament. But I would recommend two books that you should find extremely helpful in cutting through the confusion and getting some excellent clarity through primary sources and only the most authoritative academic voices. The first is a book called How the Bible Was Formed by James E. Smith. Dr. Smith was a former Old Testament professor at Florida Christian College, and he has tremendous expertise in this subject and has written a marvelous piece about it. The second book is unfortunately without a title, and one that cannot currently be purchased because it's still being written. But I want to mention this one and recommend it in the strongest way, especially regarding the points that we've made a moment ago about the Septuagint. This book, as I said, is in production, and we'll call it The Formation and Criticism of the Old Testament Canon until we have a better title. Maybe that's what it will end up being called. It's by an exceptional Bible student named Matthew Schaefer, who is currently serving as an evangelist at a congregation in Indiana, and soon, the Lord willing, will be moving to Germany to work with churches there and to continue his education. When his book is available, I'm going to be sure to make an announcement on this podcast along with information on the best way to purchase it. He began writing it while he and I were working together, and I had the privilege of reading and learning from the early manuscripts, and I can tell you that Without doubt, it is the best material I have ever seen on this subject, and it will be a tremendous addition to any Bible student's library. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit TulsaChurchOfChrist.com From all the dark places of earth's heathen races Oh, see how the thick shadows fly The voice of salvation awakes every nation Come over and help us, they cry the kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. 
At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.